Along the way, I've heard there was a good book that I should look into called Simple Church. And it was written by uh, two men. One of them's name is Eric Geiger. And I always thought, that's interesting. I had a friend in college named Eric Geiger, and I always thought I should read that book just because the guy has the same name as my friend, but I never got around to it. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, and they mentioned this book, Simple Church, by Eric Geiger. And I thought, ah, that's another reminder I should read that book. Because, you know, people say things like, we're a small church, but we're busy. We do a lot. We're very active. And sometimes it feels like my life is fairly cluttered, and I need to simplify things. And so I took some time to clean my office. At least I got like halfway clean during the break. And I thought, you know, I want to really look at the schedule and try to simplify and streamline the ministry in my life. And uh, we had our Christmas service here on Sunday, Christmas Day. And then my family went to Michigan to be with my in-laws. And when I was in my, my father-in-law's office, I was on the phone with someone and I looked up and saw the book on a shelf, Simple Church. And I thought, that's the book I've been wanting to read for so long. That's the book I'm going to read while I'm here because I always read while I'm there on break. And so I just made a mental note to go back in there at some point. And then I walked out of his office and on the kitchen table, there's a Christian magazine. And on the front of it, a book by someone named Eric Geiger, a different book. But I thought, that's funny. They're like, here's the same guy that wrote that book who's here. So I opened the magazine to read more about the other book. And it's a picture of my friend from college. And I thought, wait a minute, my friend wrote this book. And I always thought it was someone else. So I went right to the office, grabbed the book and started reading it right away. And I devoured the whole thing in a couple days. Simple church. It was really a helpful read. And it gave me some good ideas for 2017. And I think my, my motto was starting to become, and now it officially is going to be for 2017, simplify. That's my motto. Simplify. I hope that many of us can learn some lessons as we enter the book of Galatians. I was already planning to preach the book of Galatians because this is the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and Galatians is a great book to look at in this 500-year uh, anniversary. And the message of Galatians is really the simple gospel. Nothing cluttered, nothing complicated. The simple gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching about and preaching to this young church in the region of Galatia in the Roman Empire. It's probably Paul's earliest letter that he wrote. We have some stories from the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter 13 and 14, where there's a famine in Jerusalem. The, the headquarters of the church, they're, they're going through some hard times, poverty, famine. And Paul probably visited Jerusalem and then wrote this letter. It probably happened before the next chapter in, chapter, in Acts chapter 15, which is where the Jerusalem council came together, which is when all the big time, big shot leaders kind of the G8 of the ancient church world, got together in Jerusalem, came up with some important decisions about how Gentile converts to Christianity, to Jesus, would not have to become Jewish or do Jewish things to really be true believers. So Paul probably wrote this around 49 AD, or before 49 AD when the Jerusalem council happened. Because if the council would have happened, he would have certainly mentioned it in this letter because it's such an important decision. It would have gone right in line with his argument that believers in Christ do not have to become Jewish to be true and sincere and even mature believers. Paul says, I wrote this letter in chapter 4, verse 13, 14, and 15 because I had a bodily ailment. That's why I came and preached the gospel to you. I don't know exactly what that means. Nobody really does. But he says, there was something wrong with me physically, and that's the circumstance in which I first preached the gospel to you folks in Galatia. Now, I have some ideas of what might have happened. When Paul was preaching in Galatia, he went to several cities like Lystra and Derby, and in those cities he was persecuted. He was even stoned 
even to the point of death almost. He was basically dragging himself out of one of those cities. And that's what he did. Gone from city to city, being driven out and persecuted. And he said, that's when I came and preached to you. I was a mess. I was probably beaten pretty badly. Maybe when he says in chapter 4, verse 16, you would have gouged your eyes out and given them to me. You guys were so sweet to me. You were like angels. Maybe he had an eye injury or maybe he had some eye disease or maybe his eyes were just swollen shut from being beaten for preaching the gospel. You can imagine a boxer after you know, seven or eight rounds. Paul says at the end of his letter, I write with large letters at the end here. See, Paul didn't actually write the whole letter with his own hand. He used a secretary. But maybe he's saying, my eyesight is so bad. Look at these large letters I'm writing at the end in closing the letter. But the rest I've written with a secretary. Maybe I couldn't even write like I normally do. I have a secretary as well. She doesn't write my letters for me, though. I don't think I'd let her do that because she's always changing what I say. When I say, say this, she's always changing things in important communications that I send to people. She even sometimes gets my name wrong. And I'm not talking about my last name, which a lot of people get wrong. She gets my first name wrong sometimes. I like her British accent, but, you know, I'm going to have to call her out on this. Siri, I'm this close to going back to Android. You don't start getting my text messages right. But Paul said, I'm giving you the word of God. Someone else is helping me write it because maybe I can't even do it right now because I'm in such bad condition. That's the condition in which I came and preached the gospel to you. Life or death conditions. A serious message. A simple message. You know, when, when life and death is at stake, you don't really get caught up in the clutter, the complications. You, you go straight to the point. You stand on the foundations. You look at the basics. When Paul preached the gospel in this region of Galatia, he was driven out of the region, just like I mentioned. And when he went on to some new regions to preach the gospel and plant new churches, other Christians came in behind him, Jewish Christians, and they began introducing new ideas that the Galatian Christians hadn't heard, such as, if you really want to be a true Christian, you need to do the things we do, culturally, Jewishly. You need to get circumcised. You need to eat those Jewish foods and follow the Jewish calendar and celebrate those Jewish holidays with us. That's what it's going to take for you to really be right with God. And Paul writes this letter to say, look, you guys are saying that I was too basic, that I was giving them the ABCs. But what I'm saying is the gospel isn't just the ABCs, it's the A through Z of the Christian life. It's the letters, it's the grammar, it's the rules that govern us. The gospel is what we never depart from. We can never go beyond the gospel and say, oh, let's, let's do something else like Jewish laws to supplement the gospel. Let's go beyond or deeper than the gospel. You can't get deeper than the gospel, the good news that Paul is preaching. What is the gospel message? Well, Paul makes it very clear in the verses we're about to read, and especially in chapter 2, he tells us that the gospel is that God loves and accepts us by His grace alone, and that when we trust in Christ, Jesus alone, by faith alone, that we are made right with God. And, and all the glory goes to God alone. That's the simple gospel. Faith in Jesus alone saves. Faith in Jesus alone saves. These other preachers that came in after Paul were preaching another message, another gospel, he says. They were adding to the simple gospel. And essentially when they added to it, they were taking away from it. More was less in that sense. When they said, let's supplement or add to the gospel that Paul preached, they were taking away the true beauty of the gospel that said Christ alone is sufficient as Savior. The gospel is simple. It's beautiful. It's powerful. 
And here's the beautiful summary of it. Let's stand as we read God's word from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you open our eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the simplicity of the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. Would you help us to order our lives and even our calendar year around the simple truths and the simple practices of what it means to be a believer in Jesus without all the hype, without all the complications, being able to cut through the distractions, being able to focus and listen to what is most important, what is eternally important this year. Help us, teach us as a church, grow us in this way to go deeper in the gospel, to never move beyond it or be distracted away from it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So who were these Galatians that Paul is writing to? I'm going to give you an overview today. We're not going to look in great detail at any particular verses or paragraphs, but we're going to look at representative ones to get an overview of what the book's basically about. Who are the Galatians? Well, the Greek word Galatian is also very similar to the Greek word Keltoi or Keltai, and it was used interchangeably in ancient times. And what is that? It, it's the word we get Celtic from. So I don't know if you would think of reading the book of Galatians as reading a book written to Celtic people, but that's essentially what you're doing when you read this book. Why don't you check the map out with me here on the next slide. The Celtic people started in Central Europe up towards where Germany is, and then they spread out, as you can see, that, that green oval in the middle is where they started from, and then they kind of spread out to the areas of yellow, and you can see down there at the bottom right corner where it says Galatia, that's where they ended up in this Roman Empire region where Paul is writing to them in modern-day Turkey. But they really spread up to Britain, that's where we think of Celtic people usually. They were in southern France, which was called Gaul, and you can hear the similarities between the word Gaul and Galatia, because they're very much the same people. Different tribes, little differences, but really the same general family, the Galatian people, or the people of Gaul, or the, the Celtic people. They were considered barbarians. If you look at the next pictures, it appears. Think this when you think of the Galatians, okay? They were fierce warriors. They were often mercenaries. They were sometimes people of large physical stature, and they were fiercely uh, fighting the Romans who were trying to conquer them for many years, hundreds of years. Perhaps you've heard of the Gallic Wars, where uh, 30 years before our Savior was born, Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, fought against the Gallic people or the, the Galatian people, and they, they just kept fighting him back for hundreds of years. Finally, he conquered them, and in this area of modern-day Turkey, he subdued them and brought them under the so-called Roman peace, which was a forced peace, a, a peace achieved by violence and war. But when you think of Galatians, think of people with lots of facial hair, tattoos, even paint on their face, piercings. Think of a biker gang, but on horses. That's what you think of when you think of the Galatians, all right? They were, they were considered barbarians. And so uh, let's go to the next slide to get that image out of your head for a minute. The first century Galatia was a huge geographical area. It included cities like I've mentioned today, Lystra, Derby, other places Paul preached. And these 
uh, people were considered a threat to Rome. They were a large clan, a large family of peoples. And they were often uh, looked at suspiciously because the Roman emperors would think of them as threatening Roman law and order. At any given moment, this sleeping giant could rise up and fight back. And sometimes they did. We have similar issues in our world today, even in America today, when people in power, people who have become the elites, people who have taken control by force, oppress the minority classes under them and fear the minority classes and do whatever they can to keep them in check and in subjection and in oppression. Any amens on that? Amen. To these non-Jewish new Christians who had been exposed to Jewish teachings, Jewish stories from the Old Testament, even Jewish laws, Paul now comes to them and uses Jewish explanations from the scriptures even of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, to persuade the Galatians to be less Jewish. Okay? They knew about Judaism. They had heard of it. They had learned it. But Paul is saying to them, using Jewish arguments and stories, don't become more Jewish. Become more like Jesus. He was a Jew, but you don't need the food laws. You don't need the circumcision. You don't need the calendar days. You don't need to be culturally a Jew to be right with God. Paul's saying, you're barbarians. Be Christian barbarians, okay? Just be who you are. Wild hair and all. Just let it, let it flow. Let it hang out, all right? Simplicity, he's saying. You don't have to pursue Jewishness. You have to pursue Jesus through the message of the gospel. Paul is a builder. Several times in this text, including chapter 2, verse 18, he says things like this. If I rebuild what I tore down, I would prove myself to be a transgressor or a sinner. He's saying, I've torn down the foundation of my Jewish identity, which I used to stand on because I'm a Jew too, and I used to think a lot about myself because I kept all the Jewish rules and regulations. But he says, I tore that down, and I've rebuilt something on that. The simple gospel of grace alone, God saves me through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul's a builder. He's building a church, not a brick-and-mortar church. He's building a church of people, of course. He's a construction-minded builder of God's kingdom. And so he's using his construction terms to say things like, I lay a foundation, the gospel, Jesus alone. And this temple or the house of God has a, one front door that everyone comes through. And there's one table that everyone sits at. There's one family and one father who gathers us together and adopts us as his children. There's one family of faith united under Christ. But after Paul flees for his life from the region of Galatia, other builders come in and they begin tearing up and throwing away his blueprints of the gospel and saying, no, no, Paul had it wrong. We need to teach you the extra stuff, the additional things, the real mature way of being a Christian. Follow these particular customs of ours, these particular cultural things, even things that are from the Old Testament, the Bible. And they begin rebuilding the church in Galatia, a church that now has not one front door, but a front door and a back door. If, you, if you're Jewish or like us, you can come through the front door. Otherwise, go through the back. It has two tables and a dividing wall right down the middle of the house that these new teachers have built, these false prophets. And they say, if you're Jewish and eat like us, you can sit at the official table. You're in the club. You're one of the boys. If you're not, you sit over here on the side, separate from us. You have to be Presbyterian, or you have to be Pentecostal, or you have to be this, or you have to be that. You have to have this type of education, or you have to dress like this or speak like this to really be in the club. That's what they're saying. 
The tone of Paul's letter, for obvious reasons, is urgent and it's passionate. Life or death was at stake. He had risked his life to preach the simple good news of Jesus, and these other people are cluttering it up with deadly theology. Imagine if the false prophets come and begin taking away from the simple gospel and actually taking away from it by adding to it, then the Christians are in jeopardy of not only mistreating one another with these cultural issues, but they're in jeopardy of losing their own solid and simple faith in Jesus. There's two main problems with the false gospel preached in Galatia after Paul. Number one, they were preaching that Christ alone was not sufficient. Christ needed some help. Christ the Savior needs you to do your part by eating the right foods or following the right laws or being right culturally. That's a problem. When you say Jesus isn't enough, you also must add this. Jesus plus something else. That's a problem. The second problem of what they were preaching, the false teachers, is that they were saying you can do this in your own ability and power. You don't really need the Spirit of God to sweep into your life and renovate your heart and give you power that's alien to you, that's unknown to you apart from God. They were saying, as long as you try hard and are sincere and do your best to keep the law, you'll be okay. God will accept you. That's not true, Paul says. He says there's only one gospel, and it's simple. It's this. Salvation is faith in Christ, nothing more. The power comes by His Holy Spirit alone, not by human effort of any sort, not by human credentials or cultural background. Christ is our living hope, he says. Christ is our only hope. Christ is the only hope for everyone, Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, even to the Galatians. Christ died to reconcile people to God and unite all his redeemed people into one family to sit at one table. That's our motto as a church. From many worlds, one family by Christ's redeeming grace. That's the message that Paul's preaching. This simple gospel truth leads to unity. It leads to a fruitful life through the power of God's Spirit. Now, simplicity shows up in Galatians in several ways. I want to just look at three of them briefly and just give you a couple key verses to hold on to before next week's sermon in which we'll look at the simple gospel in more detail. The simplicity, the simple nature of the gospel shows up first in, in its sufficiency, the message of sufficiency, which simply means Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus alone is necessary for being made right with God. No other gospel. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, to them, he's speaking of these false teachers, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. He's like, "I, I knew it from the very beginning. I didn't budge an inch. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, look at that simple phrase. The truth of the gospel might be preserved. Paul is saying, think in capital letters, capital T, capital H, capital E, the gospel. There's one gospel, and I'm going to preserve it for you. I don't want it to be undermined or eroded or added to. There's only one gospel. He calls in chapter 1 all this other teaching Another gospel completely. A whole other deal. It's, it's not even close to the gospel. Because you begin adding little things here and there, you lose it completely. <clears throat> Paul says in chapter 2, verse 16, a very important section of the book, uh, maybe the most important theological section about salvation, he says in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified 
That means they're not made right with God or righteous in God's eyes. They're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Greek phrase here, but through faith in Jesus Christ, literally should be translated something like, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a stronger phrase than just but. But only through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, how many times is he going to say it in one sentence? It's only in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. This is the simple gospel. There's only one of those gospels. There's only one message. It's sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. In, in verse 20 of chapter 2, Paul goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. This is a verse some of you probably memorized and quoted before. It's, a, it's an awesome verse to make the banner of your life if you want to. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Same phrase as we read in chapter 1 when we first started today. Jesus gave himself for us. That's the gospel. If someone says, what is the gospel? It's this, Jesus gave himself for me. He gave his life for me. He exchanged places with me. Jesus now lives in me and through me. The life I now live, I, I don't even live it on my own, on my own power, for my own agenda, by my own will. I live by God's will. When I was in college, I had a friend named Lynn. She's a very sweet, godly young woman, one of my best friends in college. And um, she was in the same program as I was in biology. And one time we were taking a chemistry test. And at the end of it, it was a hard test. I, I said, how did you do, Lynn? And she said, well, I don't know. I think I did okay, but God, God took the test for me. And, you know, I, I think it was actually when we were getting our grades for it. She's like, God made an A on my test for me. And I thought, that's a strange way to say it. I really appreciated her humility and giving God all the glory. But I thought, that's an interesting way to say, God took the test for me. And I, I was like, you know, if I would have been more uh, theologically uptight and, you know, I would have been like, let me correct you, Lynn. Let me, let me tell you how you should say it, you know. God did it through you, maybe, but God didn't actually do it because you actually took the pencil in your hand and filled in those bubbles, and, and it was your brain doing the work. But yes, God enabled you. So I appreciated the, the thought behind it. It's not even me that's living this life. It, it, I don't get the credit for it. It's not my power. It's Christ in me, taking my tests right alongside of me. I, oh, yeah, I'm doing the work. I have to study. I have to you know, sweat and cry sometimes, and I need, to, I need to pray, and I may or may not do great, but if I do great, I'm going to give God all the glory, all the credit. I'm going to recognize it's His power helping me every step of the way from start to finish. This is my Creator I'm talking about. I wouldn't even exist if He hadn't put me here. So, of course, everything is through Him. He loved me, and He gave Himself for me. He's with me. He's given me His righteousness. He's given it to me. It's in me. It's working through me. This is the sufficient gospel that Paul is preaching. Jesus alone is sufficient. It's simple. Simplicity also shows up when you begin seeing how if, if you're not really living your life anymore, then it's not really about you. It's about other people. So now we see simplicity showing up in the theme of unity in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Okay, if it's, if it's not about you, if you've crucified yourself and your flesh and your sinful desires, 
and you're living for something beyond you, you're living for the glory of God, then you're going to have relationships with people who are going to call on you and they're going to need you. They're going to need your resources and your energy and your time and your ear and your heart. They're going to have a claim over you because you're not your own anymore. You belong to a church. You belong to a body of believers, a family. And when families call, you need to listen. When, when a baby cries, what does a mom do? She goes, checks it out. She takes care of the needs. When a, a, a little kid says, I need food, I'm hungry. It's our responsibility as parents or older brothers and sisters to help them. When a brother or sister in the family of faith has a need, it's our obligation to show our unity and love them through good deeds. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9, there are many different types of people in the church, Jews and Gentiles. Okay, the Jews were one group, the Gentiles, everybody else that wasn't Jewish. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9, that when the Jerusalem church leaders, remember the, the big shots, the, the, uh, the ones that were really in charge of the church, you could say, the ones that were making the, the new uh, rules for what Christians should live like, and, and when we're talking about sorting through the old rules, like you don't have to be Jewish, well, what should you be? Well, they came up with some pretty important things. And Paul said, yeah, they got that right. And they approved my gospel and said, yes, Paul, you're getting it right too. Now, the only difference is we're preaching the same message, but we're preaching it to different people groups. Same mission, different mission fields. So in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, When James, the brother of Jesus, and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, we've all heard of him, who seemed to be pillars, they were very important pillars in the temple, in the church, the new church, they perceived that grace had been given to me, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship, also to Barnabas, so that we should go to the Gentiles, and they would go to the circumcised, to the Jews. See? Divide and conquer. Same message we're preaching to different people, though. It's a united church. may have different expressions. They might sing some different songs over there in Galatia than we do over here in Jerusalem or from Chicago to wherever else around the world. But it's the same simple message. We're united on that. Some problems crept in, though, pretty quickly. Start reading in chapter 2, verses 11 and following. He says, But we had a problem when Peter, or Cephas as he's called here by his Aramaic name, came to Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's a pretty big charge to condemn Peter, who Jesus called the rock. And said, I'll build my church on you. For Paul to say, okay, he stood condemned and I opposed him to his face. It's got to be serious business. Why? Verse 12. For certain men came from James over there in Jerusalem. I mean, James is the brother of Jesus. He, he knows what he's talking about, right? And Jerusalem's the headquarters. But certain men came to Antioch, where Paul was stationed at the time as a missionary. And they'd been eating with the Gentiles, Peter and the other guys in Antioch. But suddenly, when these other brothers from Jerusalem came, you know, the Jerusalem missionaries, Peter began to withdraw from eating with Gentiles. He said to those barbarians, I can no longer eat with you guys. Sorry. Why? Why did he separate himself? He feared the circumcision party. And then in verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also acted hypocritically. He's calling Peter a hypocrite. <laughs> okay. So that even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas. Barnabas is a great guy. His name means son of encouragement. I mean, he's the one usually encouraging the barbarians. Come on, guys, let's go to McDonald's. Or, well, maybe not McDonald's, but, you know, let's go get some kosher food at least. I don't know. Wherever we go, we're going to do it together. Come sit at my table. Come into my home. Come eat with me and my family. Peter was married, you know. He had a family. Come eat with us. Barnabas, Peter, they all, one by one, feared 
the circumcision part. They feared being called not true. Not true Jews. Not true Christians. You have to distinguish yourself. You have to divide from those immature, um, sinful Christians who aren't keeping the law as they should. Separate but equal was their policy. Uh, Paul says separate but equal is not equal at all. It's exclusive. exclusive. It's excluding family members who should be sitting at the same table as you. And so we'll learn more about that in coming weeks. But Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 18, one more thing about unity. He says, the inheritance, the gift of God, the grace of God, eternal life through Jesus and all that comes with it. The inheritance, he says, comes not by the law, but by promise. And then he says in verse 28, the promise, not the law, comes to everyone of every nation who believes. There's neither Jew nor Greek. It's not about Jewish law or Jewish customs. It's neither Jew nor Greek. It's neither slave nor free, rich or poor, educated in the highest institutions or on the streets. It doesn't matter. The promise comes to all. There's no male or female. Just because you're a boy and you had circumcision at eight days, something's different now. There's baptism. All get the sign of the covenant. Men and women are both filled with the Spirit of God to do ministry in His church. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Unity. It's simple. One message unites all people. If, if, if there are different Gospels and different messages and even different ways of salvation or different religions, that does not unite people. We have to ignore the differences to be united in some superficial way in that case. But if there's a true message that God loves you and you and you and them, and He's come to do the only thing necessary and the only thing required to give His very life, to give Himself for you, and if there's only one table that we must gather at, then that truly unites all people. In the gospel of Jesus, the simple gospel of Jesus. The last thing we see here about the simplicity of the gospel is its singularity. You hear the word single in there. Just one thing, very important. One thing to pursue, a singular focus. Paul uses the the words one and only. He uses the words nothing else but this one thing several times throughout the letter. And it's a little funny because he keeps saying, this is the only thing, this is the only thing. And he like says different things. And you might think, well, which one is it, Paul? you got to pick. But he's saying the same thing, just in different applications. He's saying the same thing. There's one gospel. There's one way to live to please God. And I'm going to give you different applications of how to do it. Let me give you some examples. The first time he says something like this, so overtly, is in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, When I was in Jerusalem, after that famine happened, and I brought some financial aid to the believers in Jerusalem... You know, a mercy ministry, a, a ministry of relief. I brought this money to the poor Jewish Christians that were there that were suffering and didn't have any food to eat. And when I was leaving town, when I was going through the city gates on my way back to preaching to the Gentiles, here's what they said. Wait, Paul, wait. Before you leave, only remember this. Only remember this. And he says, that's the very thing I was going to do anyway. What is it? Remember the poor. Remember the poor. That's the, wait, Paul, one more thing. Make sure you don't forget. This is so important. Remember the poor. I, I'm already doing it. That's why I came to Jerusalem, to share money that I collected for those that were hurting. If you don't remember the poor, 
You don't have anything. You ain't nothing. You don't have the gospel if you forget the poor, forget people that are hurting, forget people with needs. If it's all about you and how you feel, then you don't have the true gospel. Paul says, that's the one thing I was eager to do already. Thanks for the reminder. I've got it covered. The second thing, let me just say this. As we think about a class being offered on budgeting today, through Jeff and Thrivent Financial Services, a Christian financial agency, we're going to learn things. Anybody that comes is going to learn something. You're going to be challenged to be a good steward. You're going to be challenged to simplify your life in 2017 financially. To look at your life and say, how am I living too extravagantly? What am I spending money on that I shouldn't be? Maybe it's cigarettes. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's the newest technology. Whatever comes out, you have to have it. It could be anything. Maybe you're, you're spending too much money on food. I don't know what it is, but you're going to be able to assess and streamline and simplify for the sake of others. For the sake of the gospel. So thank you, Jeff, for presenting that opportunity for us today. The second thing that Paul says that, that I notice here is in chapter 3, verses 2 and following. But look at chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Well, I mean, he's asking them a lot in this letter. But he's like, okay, let me just only ask you this, one thing. Did you or did you not receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is, by the Spirit of God. You received Gifts and grace and even miracles were done among you, he says, because the Spirit was present among you. Not because you obeyed some laws or ate certain foods or got circumcised. He says, this is so important that you can only live the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by your own effort. We try to do that so often, though. Anytime you're discouraged or depressed or think, I can't do it or I won't do it, you're not living by the Spirit. You're relying on yourself. Start this new year with a fresh resolve to live by God's Spirit. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy or you're going to always enjoy it. It just means you'll have real power and you won't be forgetful of what's so important that you cannot do this in your own strength. The third thing he says is tied to the the one I just said, that when the Spirit comes into your life, you begin bearing fruit. He talks about that in chapter 5. And the greatest of the fruits is love. And then Paul says in chapter 5, verse 6, he says it very specifically... For, Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Completely worthless, he says, in the big picture. But only faith working through love. See, nothing else matters. Only this counts. Faith expressing itself, working through love, produced by the Spirit of God. He also says in chapter um, 5, Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. What's the word? What do you think? Take a guess. Don't look at your Bibles. What's the one word that sums up the whole of the law? Come on. Where are you guys at? Say it. Love. One word. He says only one word you need to remember the whole law. Love. And that's produced by the Spirit of God. And that's shown as you live your faith actively by working for other people for the glory of God. He says, I'm working incessantly. I'm working tirelessly. Chapter 4, verse 19. Here's another one thing that Paul says he does. In 4, 19, he says, My little children for whom I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Right? Childbirth is an anguishing thing. When you give birth, 
It's labor. It's called labor for a reason. And Paul says, I'm laboring for one thing, that Jesus literally would be shaped in you, that you would become in the shape of Jesus, that you would look more like Christ. That's my urgent labor of love for you. That's how love is expressing itself in my life for you, Galatians. And then he says, not only are you supposed to live Christ-shaped lives, but he then says in chapter 6, verse 14, cross-shaped lives. Chapter 6, verse 14, but far be it for me to boast except. See, you hear it? I'm not going to boast in anything except, okay, there's one thing I will boast in. Because Christians aren't supposed to boast, right? But I'm going to boast in, must be really important, here it is. Boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. It's dead to me, and I to the world. I don't need the world. I don't need all the trappings. I don't need all the complications. I don't need all the distractions. I don't really need my phone continually pinging me and reminding me of all the information that I must look at. I don't really need that. What I need is the cross of Christ, and I need to be crucified to the world. It means I can't check out of life and like be a hermit and go live in a cave somewhere. It just means that nothing else compares. His agenda, his mission is my mission. He's my life. I've died to everything else. He's my life. What a strange thing to say. The cross, boasting the cross. What does that mean? The Romans used the cross as a torture instrument to punish the worst criminals in the Roman Empire. The, the cross was where terrorists would die. People that go and shoot people in airports, this is what would happen to them. They'd be crucified. Why is Paul boasting in this instrument of capital punishment in the Roman Empire? This is what they put people like Peter on when they crucified him and Jesus himself, that troublemaker who was stirring up trouble in the Roman Empire among the Jews. They crucified him. That's how they dealt with him. That's how they brought peace to troublemaking regions. They crucified people and lined them up along the way when you'd walk down the road. You'd see their bodies hanging there and you'd say, I don't want to be that guy, so I'm going to go on the down low in the Roman Empire. I'm not going to disturb the law and order. And they would bring peace by violence, by crucifixion, by death, by war. That's how peace was accomplished. And Paul says, I'm boasting. You know why? Because all that Rome had, all that Rome threw at us, everything the Jews threw at Jesus, who was a Jew crucified on a Roman cross, God overcame it all. You couldn't destroy the Son of God. He rose again. He has overcome. He has brought the victory. That's what we're saying. Hallelujah. You have won the victory. You have won the price for me. You've paid the price for me. Death could not hold you down. The Romans couldn't hold you down. The cross couldn't hold you down. So I'm going to go ahead and boast in the cross. Because it just magnifies how powerful you are. It's the only thing I can boast in. Death itself has nothing on Jesus' power in his life. And then the final thing is, he says in chapter 6, verse 15, neither foreskin nor circumcision count for anything. I mean, if you're talking about life and death and Jesus rising from the dead, do you think a piece of skin on the male area is really that big of a deal? If Jesus is bursting forth from the grave to live forever as King of kings and Lord of lords over all nations, do do you think that what you do with your foreskin really matters? Or whether you eat pork or not? Or whether you keep certain religious holidays? I mean, does that really change the universe? No, no, not really. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 15, circumcision counts for nothing, neither uncircumcision, but only what? 
a new creation. I mean, when Jesus comes and changes the whole world, like the whole planet's redone, and when your heart is made new, that's what's important. Not whether you're Jewish or not. Not whether you're Presbyterian or not. Not whether you're Pentecostal or not. Not whether you're Baptist or Methodist or anything else. A new creation is what's important. That God would sweep into your life and renovate you and change you completely. You become a new person in Him. We're not living for circumcision or laws or cultural practices or anything. We're living for Jesus this new year. That's what we need to do. Simplify, push everything to the side. I know you still have homework and you still have dirty diapers and you still have a job to do. You still have to look for a job. I know that, but let Jesus be the center of all of this year. Simplify your life. Get back to the basics. Are you reading your Bible? That's not going to save you, but it's kind of the basics. Like It's the Word of God given for you. He didn't just give himself for you on a cross. He gave his word you. His heart is contained in this message. This is the gospel contained in here. Are you praying? Are you trusting and depending on the Spirit of God? Are you meeting together? I mean, I know that you're all here today, but what about next week? Are you going to come and worship with God's people? Are you going to join up with a group on Sunday or Wednesday night or some other time to fellowship with God's people, to build into their lives and they and yours? Are you going to do some service and work in the kingdom? Just the simple things, just a few simple things. God's saying, focus on those. Push the others aside. Let's live for the new creation. Let's live for the creation that's already working among us, the kingdom of God. Let's, let's work for the, the creation that's still to come, the new creation which fully will be here one day. Forget the here and now. I mean, we're here and we're here now, but live for the thing that's here now and will be here forever, the kingdom of God. Simplify your life. Glorify God. Simplify. That's the message for this year. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would bring you much glory as we sort through the distractions and the complications and the clutter and we work our way through the labyrinth of life and all of its twists and turns and and untangle some traditions that maybe we've kept or some bad habits that we have or some sins or even just good things that have become idols, I pray that we would untangle and sort through and cast aside those things that we could really just live a life that would please you, a simple life, not an easy life. It's not easy figuring this this out even, but help us to get to that point where we can get back to the basics and stand firm on the foundation and live a life that could truly say, it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I'm living right now, right here in this body, I want to live by faith alone in the Son of God alone. Who, of all the other options, of all the other saviors, who alone gave himself for me, for us, for this church, for your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper? the Holy Communion today.